0: A better way to do this. Let me show you a way.
1: You Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times. And the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 2590 of the Survival Podcast. It is Tuesday, January 28th, 2020. And this is time for a Just Jack standalone show. So last week, I did two of these shows like this, a Thursday and a Tuesday. And on Thursday, it can be a a call-in show, it can be a show like this, it can be an impromptu interview. I kind of keep that day like a floater now. I decided last week I wanted to do a standalone show, and I didn't have a topic in mind. So I threw up a post on Facebook, a buttload, like a hundred different comments came in asking for different shows and and, and topics, and the one I'm going to do today was the one I was like right about to do, and then Jeff Lawton asked for one on Food fares for Global Stability, and when Jeff Lawton asked me to do a show, I'm going to do it, so... The other one that I was really thinking about doing, and I might keep going back to this list because it's a pretty good list, um, was on building a business in the year 2020. And this is a subject that I have been pushing since 2008 when I started the show. And I'll, I'll tell you what, in 2008, the preparedness space was different than it is today. Right now, the preparedness space is kind of lackadaisical, honestly, and it's it's why i built this business the way that i did in making it very diverse so that we talk about homesteading we talk about cooking we talk about health we talk about entrepreneurship preparedness is just the the way by which we design our lives so that we don't fall off all the wonderful things we've worked to build in our lives in 2008 we were heading toward you know 2012 and all the hype and there were Prepper shows starting to come out and all this type of stuff. and it was it was becoming a really big uh, wave. And it created a scene that lots of people wanted to play in. And the overriding theme was our biggest potential disaster was financial collapse, which if you know anything about the economic system, you understand why people would feel that way. However, the more you learn, the more you realize, yes, it's all a game, but it's a game that works pretty well. And it's a game that can have the rules rewritten at any time, and even though there's there's likely to be a lot of pain sometime in the fairly near future, I think from economic problems, uh, complete and total collapse, i.e., James Wesley Rawls, people shooting each other, eating each other in the streets. I said did say eating each other, you know, burning down the the whole world, etc., because of the value of the dollar. Probably not likely, but boy, there was a big belief in it at the time. So when I started talking about building versus just preparing. I got a lot of pushback. There's no point. What does it matter? I start talking about getting out of debt. Well, why does it matter? The whole world's in debt and it's all going to go, you know, shit to the pot anyway. You know, if you if you if you followed the advice of people like that in 2008, how well is it working out for you in 2020? My, my belief has always been, and this is something that goes back to, I mean, probably the first 20 episodes, it was within uh, the time that I talked about something that I call the, the, the probability uh, matrix, or the real probability spectrum. In other words, how likely is something to happen to you? And it is completely the opposite of the way people think. When people get into prepping, they get into prepping largely due to a belief of a pending global or minimal national disaster. That's what wakes them up. Hey, everything's not super. Everything's not perfect. The world could end any day. I need to be prepared. But the most likely disaster that you're going to experience is the individual or family-level disaster. In our order of probability, we always start out with the individual disaster. Losing your job. Getting a terminal or very serious illness. Having a immediate family member, a spouse, a child get a terminal or extremely serious illness. Being crippled in a car accident. You know, again, losing a job, going bankrupt, having your house burned down. That those are the things that like, we all know people these things have happened to. I don't know anybody who died in the middle of a global plague. It's happened in history, but I don't know anybody. I know lots of people who got really, really sick. I know lots of people who have lost immediate family members to sudden death. I know lots of people. I know I've fired people, so I damn well know people who have lost a job. This is what we prepare for first. And then, again, you just keep going down the spectrum. And the lower the number of people affected by a disaster, the more likely you are, as an individual, to have this happen. Neighborhood. Some kind of storm or flooding or happening that happens kind of right in your neighborhood or immediate kind of surrounding suburban area. Then you kind of move out to region, like larger city scale stuff Baltimore, LA riots, Ferguson riots, okay? Then you move out to like state level disaster. And state would really be more like a portion of the country. In China right now, you know, everybody's afraid of a global pandemic, but it's Wuhan province where the biggest problems are. And the secondary, um, the secondary problems, like being told you can't leave your home, being locked down under martial law, right? It's not a China-wide issue right now, is it? It's a, it is a region of China, or a state level, right? Then we go to a national-level disaster, which with our country is probably going to have global implications. Period. But then you go to a true global, and it's that order. And everybody starts on the extreme global side of this instead of the side of, hey, something could go wrong. And I think the reason that maybe I come at this a little bit differently is, is I am a child of the 70s and 80s, and especially the 80s. The 70s were stagflation, recession, etc. I was pretty young. I was old enough to know what the hell was going on in the 80s. And I remember, you know, Ronald Reagan coming in, taking over the presidency, the economy turning around, my dad's business doing well. And I come from a family that's very big on you don't go into debt, and you don't owe anybody shit, and you don't get stupid with your money, and you save. So I saw a huge contrast in the way the rest of the nation was behaving, and I mean, you can say, well, everybody's in debt now, everybody has a credit card now, yeah. But see, in the 1980s, not everybody had a credit card, but it seemed like everybody sure as hell got one, and consumerism went parabolic in the 80s. You could say that it didn't come down much, but it hasn't. Like, if you look at what what happened with consumerism mentality in this country from let's say 1979 to 1985, it was in freaking sane. And let me tell you one of the biggest reasons for that. There were economic things that happened that enabled it. But the the society the societal mentality that caused it, we had been living under the potential of nuclear war for forty years. And people had gotten to a point where with all the saber rattling, all the things that had happened, the Cuban Missile Crisis that had happened back in the sixties, all the things that went on through the seventies. Things got better, but it seemed like that didn't go away. We had a thing called out called come out called The Day After, a two-day miniseries that showed what the reality of nuclear war would be like, and when it ended, the, the final thing that it ended with was an old man screaming, get out of my house, that was a pile of rubber there was a little bit of text that said an actual nuclear war would be way worse than this. And people thought it's all gonna end anyway. It's all gonna end anyway. And because of that The attitude became, might as well enjoy it. Well, Amex, MasterCard, Visa, whatever, screw it. I ain't going to pay the bill. We're all going to die anyway. It doesn't matter. And even though people didn't put it that way a lot, people occasionally said it, there was an underlying feeling that made people think that way. Well, as we came up through the 2000s, we had a belief in an economic Armageddon that was coming. And also a Mayan calendar thing, and you know Y2K came and went, nothing really happened, but that kind of woke people up to, hey, everything's not super, put people in touch with it, and then fear took over. And it was the same thing. There's no reason to build. There's no reason to build security in your life because it's all going to end anyway. So you take a point in history, 1980, 1990, 2000, 2008, 2010, any point in there, do you decided to follow the advice of screw it, it's all going to end anyway, just prepare for the end of the world and live your life and don't build anything, was that, in the past 40 years, ever good advice? In the past 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years? Let's go back 120 years to 1900. We have two major depressions before we get to World War II. We have a pandemic in the Spanish flu that kills 50 million people throughout the world. That wasn't even good advice then. What makes you think it's good advice in 2020? It's not. The reality is the number one thing that we can do to insulate ourselves from individual disasters or mitigate the ones that we can't stop. Owning a business will not stop you or a family member from getting cancer. But owning a business will make dealing with a cancer diagnosis a hell of a lot easier. It really will. If it's the the right kind of business built the right way that has a cash flow that is at least partially passive, and allows flexibility so that you can run your business while you take care of yourself or somebody else, it will do more than any job could ever do for you. That's just one example. With that, before we dive headlong into the subject, let's go ahead and recognize our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day, number one today, is the Free State Project. Uh, The Free State Project has a slogan that I love, Liberty in Our Lifetime. What the Free State Project decided to do was move as many people as they could to this tiny state of New Hampshire to influence that state toward greater liberty, and they've done a fantastic job with it. And I'll tell you why. Because they are not a political organization. They are an organization that has a lot of political people in it. They also have a lot of people that are anti-political. When I've been to events at the Free State Project, like Liberty Forum, where I've been three times, like For- Pork Fest, where I'm going this year, it's amazing to me to see people who are congressmen and anarchists getting along in the same place. It's the only place I've ever really seen that. And people might even disagree about the way to get there, but they all agree about where they're going. If you want to learn more about this and how you can become part of it, go to fsp.org forward slash join today. And remember, if you want to come meet all those great people and hang out with me, I will be at Porkfest this summer uh, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And it'll be a cool presentation, at least one of them, because uh, I'm not going to tell you exactly how this is going to relate, but where we are, where we will be standing You will be able to see the summit of Mount Washington. And I ended my hike back in 1990 that I started in Pennsylvania on the summit of that mountain. And I'm going to tie that in. And I'm going to tie that into Liberty. So come meet me at the Free State Project and consider being part of it. Next up today, Western Botanicals. I have my entire life had a belief that for many things that go wrong with us, w- wrong in our lives, herbs are the, are the primary thing we should look to first. I do not have anything against modern medicine as a whole. There are certain things I think modern medicine does really, really well. And there are certain times that I would want to be nowhere other than the hands of, let's say, a trauma surgeon in a modern hospital. However, back to being a little boy, I remembered learning about herbs like plantain, um, from my grandfather. And understanding the amazing healing power of herbs. So when Western Botanicals approached me about sponsoring the show, I was very excited to have an herbal company I could recommend. The more I learned about them, the more excited I became. Real people that really care about you, long-term supporters of the show, and they give away their premium membership that's valued at $50 to all members of the MSB. So that... One membership that they give away pays for your membership for the first year by itself. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com, Or if it's legal and herbal, you'll find it in the United States. And everything is either organically grown or wildcrafted. Again, check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. All right, let's get into this. Um, I, I am not going to say here, like, today's not going to be a show where I say, like, here's 20 ideas to start a business. It's not going to be a show like this is the best 10 business sectors to be involved in or whatever. There's tons of crap out there like that and I think most of it's meaningless. I think the only value in things like that is if what you really should be doing is just under the surface of of your attention. Like you're just not quite sure what it is, but it's kind of right there, you're right on the edge of finding it. And the thing that they they say matches it or is close enough to bring it to the surface and go, oh, I could do this, and then you go down that path, that's about all the value that, like, here's 10 businesses you can start does. That means, doesn't mean it doesn't have any value. I've done shows like that, I probably will again, because I think it's good to get people thinking and going through, like, mental gymnastics of how would that look, how would it work, can I do this? But in the end, I can give you 10 great businesses to start. And if they are not a good fit for you, no matter how good the time is to be in that business, let me just say this. There is some luck in my success. In the in 2008, mid-2008, starting a podcast on preparedness and lifestyle design combined in the way that I did was a absolute perfect home run hit for the type of business and the topic. There was nothing like this. I got first mover advantage. And if somebody had said, you should do a podcast like what TSP became, it would have been good advice. If you can't do a podcast like this because you don't have the depth of knowledge and the desire to know more, or you're not a good oral presenter, or it's not your type of thing if you're not going to enjoy podcasting, because podcasting is more work than people think. You know, two guys getting together and doing some podcast on some random topic once a week, that's a lot more work than people think it is when they do it. I've heard from so many people like, yeah, we just figured we'd talk about basketball or whatever, and yeah, we got together, holy crap, how do you do this five days a week on all these different subjects? Yeah, it's hard. So even though that was a good market fit, it would have only been good for a person that had the desire, the drive, the acumen, the talent, and the product and, 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 and subject matter knowledge as a foundational point, to do it. That's not, oh, look how good Jack is. That's like, there's probably 10,000 people that could have done that. But if you're number 11,000 and there's only 10, then it's the wrong fit for you. So what I wanted to do today was talk about business in a more you know, general concepts level so that it gives you a way to think about starting a business today so that you can figure out, is this right for you? And if it is, what's right for you? So I like to break things down to their their most basal component parts. And I want to start out with breaking down uh, any business that you would start right now into six parts. Three parts of two. Okay, So the first one is, there's two primary types of business today. And there's always been two primary types of business. The internet has made it more obvious as to which one you're doing. But I would say, because lack of a better term, they are lifestyle businesses and conventional businesses. A lifestyle business is what I have. I talk about what I know. My entire life led up to it. I incorporate all my experiments on my little farm into it. I am able to bring my daily life into this business. And it's it's not unique. There's More lifestyle businesses today than there ever have been, thanks to things like social media, the Internet, YouTube, etc. There are tremendous numbers of examples. Uh, Cody, Wrangler Star, uh, would be a great example of a lifestyle business. Um, Totally different from what I do, kind of the same in a way, um, but he shares his life, his projects on YouTube, very high-end video production level. Justin Rhodes... Um, would be, his business would be an example of a lifestyle business. Going into like nutrition, uh, the married couple that run the website Keto Connect and the YouTube channel goes along with it, I would call that a lifestyle business. Thomas DeLauer uh, in the keto world, I would call his business a lifestyle business. In other words, what they've done is they've monetized the things that they would do with their life anyway and that has allowed them to focus maybe not 100%, but more on that component to their lifestyle than they would be able to do otherwise. If I still had a regular job, there's no way I could dedicate the amount of time and effort I do into all of my little experiments and and what have you, and all of my research and all of the things that I do to put the show together. And that's one of the things that you guys financially support me so that I can do that, so that I can be that resource to you. So lifestyle business is inherently in the modern Internet age, depend on you providing some level of service with your freedom that you have obtained to live that life that way. And then by doing so, you're able to reciprocate it back. But farming in some ways has always been a lifestyle business, for some anyway. There's lots of businesses that are lifestyle business. The fishing guy is a lifestyle business. Even if he doesn't have much of an online component to it at all, If a person loves to fish and wants more than anything else to be on the water every day. Right, uh, any kind of a travel guide business, and there's like lots of things. So the think thing, lifestyle business simply means that we're integrating our life into our business, and we're monetizing things in our life. Um, this can even be hobby scale. I've talked before because it's easy because they're always in front of me to remind me with my fish tanks. You can monetize, you know, twenty fish tanks in your home that are a hobby by selling plants and maybe breeding something like cherry shrimp and selling them on eBay. And you're not going to pay all your bills with that, but I I, I bet you. The average person that got serious about that, dedicated a few hours a day to it, could pay their mortgage with their fish tanks, plus the electric bill. So when I say pay their mortgage, I mean after you paid the electricity on the tanks for the lights and the heat, after you paid for the feed for the fish, you're making enough profit. right? That would be another lifestyle business, monetizing a hobby. When I say conventional business, what I mean is that business really is independent of you. Old school conventional business would have been my father's business, uh, selling used tires. And it, well, I remember when I was a kid. said, "Your dad sells used tires? That doesn't sound very good." My old man made in the 1980s as much money as the president of the United States made in the 1980s. Not all the grifty money on the side, but running a tire business. I mean, honest to God, my dad made a six-figure income in the 1980s, and that's you know after all the bills were paid type. A lot of it sheltered in cash, just saying, um, selling used tires. But that was not a lifestyle business. That was mostly a one-man show. He had one or two employees over the years um, at any one time. But, and it took his life from him as far as having freedom. He did not have freedom with that business. But he didn't give a flying shit about tires. He just knew enough about them and he knew enough about business that he could monetize that and make some money off of it. And then he went, you know, recently he's been more in a pallet business. He does used recycled pallets now. He's in his 70s and he's, you know, dragging pallets around every year. But it's a conventional business. However, either of those businesses could have been built much larger and operated from an operational level with employees in them, and they would have had to get a lot bigger. And have a lot more revenue to put the same amount of money in his pocket. But they, if they were built right over time, could have become quite passive for him. But he didn't want to do that. I don't want to either. But I looked at my dad enslaving himself to basically self-employment and went, no, I don't want that. So I found lifestyle business. But conventional business simply means that it's not your life in the business. And that doesn't mean it can't take your life. So you have to think about how you balance that equation. Now, next, there's two mer- two primary types of product today. There's And there's really three, but I'm trying to make it as basic as possible. So you have physical product. In, in my dad's business, he had a physical product. He sold a tire. Now, since he put the tire on, he also sold a service. He sold both. But the primary product was the tire. You know, Almost no one ever came in and said, hey, I got some tires that I bought at the grocery store, right, or at Sam's or something like that. Can you put them on my car? Because they charge too much at Sam's or Costco to do it, mount the tires. That wasn't his bit. He sold the tire. The service was actually a necessity so that the tire could get on your car so that you would have a reason to pay him. So he was really a product lead business. He also sold gasoline. Then so the if you have a physical product is one a non-physical product is the other. And I have to say that a service is a form of a non-physical product. However, most services have a physical product component. Having a roof put on you're paying for a service but you're also buying shingles. A true non-physical product business is something that there is no thing. There's no Thing you can touch, beat on, solid component to it at all. So that would be a membership. You buy a membership from me, and you get discounts, and you get to support programming. Right, That would be an example of a pure, non-physical product. And then you do have overlays. Consulting, there may be no physical product, though usually if you do consulting the right way, you're not just giving people information uh, verbally. You're putting some sort of report, action plan together, and you have a deliverable. So there's some overlap there. But it really helps you when you start thinking about a business. Do I want to be in the physical product business or do I want to be in the non-physical product business? And, and let's look at an example of how that works. So let's say you wanted to go into cooking. That was a niche you wanted to pursue. Um a non physical product would be things like an ebook. That gives away, you know, twenty different ways to make specific seasonings for specific things. You sell that for twenty bucks. Once that product's developed and the initial development cost is recouped, it's a money machine. Now it might only print, you know, one twenty dollar bill a day or a week, but when you sell a copy, you make twenty bucks. Well you make nineteen dollars after you pay, you know, your merchant fee or whatever. And if you sell a thousand or one, you don't do any more work if you set the business up right, because it's not physical. You might have some more customer support, but if you do things right, you can, like a product like that, you should be able to automate 99% of your customer support. But you might say that the problem with that, and you would be correct in pointing out a weakness, because everything has weaknesses and strengths. The weakness would be if you buy that ebook for me, 20 amazing seasonings and rubs you can make yourself for a fraction of the price that you pay at the store, right? Something like that. Maybe it's your friends. Wow. Then, once you buy that book, I have to develop another product to sell to you. Where if I develop, develop a line of 20 seasonings, and I have good marketing, when you run out, you buy more. It's a consumable. Now, not all physical products are consumables. And what is the duration of Consumability. So, my dad sells you used tires. He tried to sell you the best used tire you could afford. Hopefully, you're not going to see him for another six months to a year. But a lot of people did come back. If I sell you a really good chicken rub and you cook a lot of chicken, you might be back next week. You see how that works. So, physical products, if they're consumables, create repeat orders, but they have lower profits. They have now I have to get the product to you. Shipping can be a problem. Right, so I can look at platforms like FBA, fulfilled by Amazon, that we talked about recently, but that's physical product. So physical versus non-physical, and then the next two primary things that you can sell to or market to, and everybody tends to think exactly the opposite of the way to go with this, and that is needs or wants. I can sell to your need, I can sell to your want. You should be selling a product to a person's want. The first thing people cut when they cut back on expenses is they cut back on their needs. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. You need food. First thing people do start clipping coupons and look for sales. You need electricity. I know people say you can live without it. You can, but in, in our world today, electricity is a need. They start If they live in a place of competition, they look for a cheaper electric bill. Uh, they turn the lights off. Whatever. The first thing people instinctively cut is their needs because it's non-discretionary spending. That means it's money that has to go out the door. So it takes a priority in their mind because it's their biggest monthly expenses. But I know for a dead fact, much to their own detriment, I know people, for instance, that are always saying they don't have money, but boy, they never miss the opening day of the Texas Rangers baseball games. They always have money for that. Back when I was younger and I went to bars and stuff, I knew people that were always broke, but they were never too broke throughout on Friday night. People cut wants after they cut needs. They cut wants when they have to. They cut needs when they feel like it might be a good idea. Additionally, the needs market is dominated by massive corporations that are difficult to compete with. And even if you want to go into what looks like the needs market, you compete in the wants market. You can't go into the food market and sell to the need. You need to buy food for me because if you don't buy food, you're going to starve. But you can go into the needs market of food and say, but I have a keto product. I have a locally grown product. I have a healthier product. I have a product that tastes better. I have a product that was made in my own kitchen. I have a product that I was so good, even though it's healthy, my kids eat it. Those are all selling to the want. So we're gonna we're gonna build a business. We either are gonna do a lifestyle or conventional business or some hybrid. We're gonna do a physical product or a service, a, a, a product driven service, or we're gonna do a non physical product. Or a pure service, right? And then we're going to, I'm just going to say here, we're going to figure out how to sell to the want of our market. Because we're not going to sell to the need of our market. Not if we're going to be successful, long-term duration. Because if we come off as a small business selling to a need, we're selling to hype. Like all the people that were competing with me back in 2008 in this space that are out of business now. And I'm still here. I never sold to your perceived need. You're going to die by this mask because the swine flu is going to get you. The people that did, they're not in business anymore, are they? You better buy silver. You better get all your money into silver right now because the dollar is going to grow. And they're out of business too. All right? Now, I have a silver shop that is, that is one of my sponsors long term, but they don't sell that way. They say silver is great. You should have it in your portfolio. We have great selection. They sell to your want. You want to have that diversity. So that's what we're going to do. Decide the type of business from a standpoint of lifestyle conventional, physical, non-physical service, and sell to the wants and develop the marketing around what our market wants. Okay. Now, much of what people think about these things are wrong. And I think I've covered that pretty well. It was a bullet point I wanted to hit on, but the biggest one is the concept that you want to sell to the need. You always want to sell to the want. So, To find your business model, what do we do? You ask yourself five questions. Five questions. And maybe the last one should be first, but for today we're going to save it for last. The first question is, what are you good at or great at? And this is not just directly involved in like a business subject. So like you might be really great at accounting. That doesn't mean that you should be an accountant or be in an accounting business. It might mean that it's a good skill that will help you in your business to be a good accountant, right? And that can transfer to a lot of things. So if you're really good at being organized, that doesn't necessarily mean you should be in the organized, you know, home organization business. Maybe you should. I don't know. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. But it does mean that's a strength. That goes on your list of things you're really good at. I'm a great organizer, which means as you build your business, you don't need to out-task the organizational requirements of your business because you're good at that. okay? And the next question then is what do you love? And this starts to get us more into potentially the subject or the niche of the business. If you really love music, it may work for you, that you could do something with music. It doesn't even have to mean you're talented at playing it. Maybe there's some way to incorporate music into some business in some way that no one else has thought of or someone else is doing really well and you can do it a little bit better or you can do it in a way that makes it accessible to people that can't get to it now. So what are you good at, what are you great at, and what do you love? And write everything down. Things you don't think have any implication on business at all, still make that list. Make lists of lists. Whenever you're planning your life, directing your life... List upon list upon list, and then you can read them over and over again because things come to us the way the human mind the flash of brilliance comes, and then oh look something shiny and oh there's a problem and oh my wife yelled at me and the dog shit on the floor and what was I thinking about? Without that list to go back to, that that one moment of brilliance that would have been the key that unlocked the door to something, whether it's a business or something else, can disappear forever. And may never come back to you ever again. So you make lists of these things. And then you have to be really honest with the next question. What do you suck at? What do you suck at? Because odds are some of the things you suck at are going to be necessary for your business. I am a terrible graphic artist. You know what that means? I do not try to do graphics for my business. When I need graphics done for my business, I get somebody to do it. I am terrible at organizing, but I'm not willing to give away enough... Of, when I say organi- organizing, all I would have to do to explain what I mean is show you a picture of my desk right now. Right, it's, it, it, it's, it's a disaster. So I can organize people, but when it comes to organizing things that just should be taken care of, I'm pretty bad at leaving things disorganized. I can eventually find anything I'm looking for, but the more that's going on, the more difficult. That's terrible for preparedness, but it, it is who I am. So what that means to me is I have to put, since my business is a lifestyle business, it's mostly a one-man show, I have to put enough organization that is automatic into my my business so that certain things always happen. Right? If I was going to grow the business larger, then one of the key things I would be looking for in any key employee is organization, skill set. Right? I would not necessarily be looking for somebody that has... An incredible financial mind. That's never gonna be a bad thing, but I gotta pay for it. I have a pretty good financial mind. Until I got big enough that I can't deal with it all, that's not what I need to hire. That's not what I need to outtask. I'm good at that. Right? Dealing with people. You might think, well, you're pretty good at dealing with people. No, I'm not. Especially when it comes to managing people. I am a hard person to work for. I actually think that I should be considered an easy person to work for because I set a high standard, you meet it, and then then I love you and I let you get away with everything as long as you meet the standard. Yeah, just not not many people meet the standard. If you're a salesperson, you meet your quota, I don't give a shit if I call you at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you're playing with your kid at Romper Room. If you're not making your quota, and that happens one time, you're fired. So, there is a place for a kinder, gentler type of manager. So once, and if I was, when I've built organizations, once I get up to a certain body count, I need someone that I can be hard on that knows how to take that and funnel it down to the lower ranks and be a little gentler, a little kinder, a little more fatherly than I am. A little less foot in the ass. Because I'm not real good at making people feel good about not performing well. I don't even understand it. But I know that it works when done the right way as long as there's somebody above that person saying, this is the bottom that this person's going to go if you don't fix them. So I would hire to that because I suck at that. I suck at dealing with somebody's feelings are hurt because I told them they didn't make quota. I I, I am not good at that. I, I have no time for that. But yet I've seen people who are like that, that with right management, become amazing salespeople. Knowing there's only so many people available to do the things in a sizable organization, when I've grown organizations, I've hired those types of people. And then you you have to have the wherewithal to stay on them. But you find out what you suck at and you either stay away from it or you shore it up either by forcing yourself to take care of it first or outtasking or hiring to your weakness. Most people completely screw this up. When they get big enough to start hiring people, they hire people just like them because they like the person. That is a terrible idea. Because the person that's good at everything that you're good at and thinks the way that you think is probably going to suck at everything you suck at. And then the things that are left and not quite done the way they should be will be worse for it. Is the Is it two of you convince yourself that all the things that you're good at is the most important thing? Higher to your, higher to your weaknesses, not your strengths. And you do that by being honest about what you suck at. When it comes to starting a business, most of you are not going to quit your job and go full-time in a business. For some of you, you probably should. I know people who have done it and been successful with it. But most of you are going to transition. And so you have to be honest about how much time you really have. And I've been pretty hard on some of y'all with you know time, and I continue to be so. I think I make... I think I make, at some times, I think I make Gary Vaynerchuk look like he's too easy on people. Because I'm so hard on people when they bitch about not having enough time. Because I'll say things like, you know, there's plenty of time between midnight and when you wake up. And there's some truth to that. And I'll tell you guys honest-to-God truth. When I started this show, I would get up at 3.30-ish in the morning, sometimes 4, sometimes 3. And I would go downstairs to my little office that I had at my place over in Arlington. And before I would get in my car and drive up to Frisco for work, which is like a 50-mile drive, I would sit down in that office because the house is completely quiet, and I would get things ready for the next day of this show. And I did that for 18 months. And I was working an average week with my job, which was basically a co-owner in a corporation serving as a C-level officer of 60 hours there. I didn't have a lot of time. But I wanted it bad enough. And I had... I was young enough and driven enough that I was willing to do that. If you're not, you need to be honest about how much time you really are driven enough to take from yourself to plow into something and for how long until it works before you say this isn't working, I need to do something else or or go back to just being an employee. Because let me tell you the last one. The last question is, is this even right for you? Is a business the right thing for you? It's not right for everybody. It's not right for everybody. I am fond of saying anybody can run a business. Anybody that wants to start a business today can. And anybody that really wants to be can be successful. But success and happiness are not always the same thing. I was very successful when I was working for other people. I was not happy. I was happy short term. But I didn't remain happy. I remember when I got my first company car. I was in sales. I made VP of sales. I got a beautiful company car. I had a massive expense account. My job was basically to travel around and take people to eat really expensive dinners. That was like 80% of my job. 20% was forecasting. I'd say say 15% was forecasting, 80% was entertaining clients, and 5% was riding the ass of my salespeople so that they made their numbers. And it took me about six months to hate my life. When I realized a lot of these people I was entertaining, I didn't want to spend five minutes with, let alone five hours. But I remember when I got that first car. I remember going out in my driveway, sitting in that car, listening to music with the car on idle, looking at the big, beautiful yard that I had. This was my house in Pennsylvania. Thinking about the fact that my wife and son had nothing to worry about. My wife didn't have to work a job if she didn't want to anymore. I feeling like I had made it. I was successful. But the reality of that job is it, is it continued to compound itself as to what it was. I was not happy. So anybody can build a business and be successful. But you, I think you can only be happy in a business if you build, one, the business that's right for you, and two, if business ownership is right for you. Those two things have to be the case. Some of you are better off designing your life. and We'll kind of finish with that, so we'll let that go. Here's the things you need today if you're going to be in business, though. I don't think anybody'll be shocked when I tell you what the number one thing is, it's a website. I don't care if you're my father in the 1980s, but now it's 2020 and you have a used tire shop that's one location, you know, on one corner of an interstate in Jacksonville, Florida with a sign that causes people pull over there. Right? And that's how he that's how he ran that business. He was in a great spot. People could see that they could get gas, they could get an oil change, and they could buy tires. And over time he built up, you know, a lot of social capital with people that didn't have enough money to go buy a new set of tires. And they knew that Jack Spirico Sr. was a good dude and wouldn't wouldn't shaft him. And whatever they needed that they could afford, he would find that for them. And he would take care of them and he would do a good job. But today, he'd be a fool not to have a website, you know, a local business presence on Google, Google Business and all that stuff. You you need a website today, and I I know that maybe I say it to the point where you're like, I know, Jack, but WordPress. Every objection I've ever heard to WordPress was largely due to ignorance about what WordPress can do or what WordPress must do. Anything that you want a website to do, it can be made to do inside WordPress. And there are thousands upon thousands of people who are good at PHP development MySQL programming, etc. That can build something for you if it doesn't exist, or can take something that does exist under open source and customize it a little bit better. Some of the largest websites in the world today are nothing but WordPress on the back end. I'll give you one that is Patreon. Patreon is built on WordPress. Patreon is driven by WordPress. Here's a completely different business: uh, PR Web. It's a press release syndication service. It's a WordPress-driven website. There are so many websites that are basically driven by WordPress. So that's where I recommend you go. And if you don't go there, you should know why you're not. I'll put it to you that way. The next thing is you have got to have a solid brand story. What is your story? And it needs to be packaged well enough that not only can you tell it, but if somebody says, well, oh, what's the survival podcast about? You can answer that question. Well, why do you listen to it? And I, I'm right now, and here's the beautiful thing about a podcast like, like I do. I can ask 10 of you and get 10 different answers, but they all have some commonalities running through them. But the clunkiest headline in the world does sum it up. It's about living a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. It's about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. It's about providing for yourself. There's a solid story. It's about community. And because it's a variety show, it's not as tightly defined as most businesses really should be. Most businesses, their brand story should be able to come down to a sentence and even a word. There's one of the largest marketing firms in the world based in London. It's called Saatchi and Saatchi, two brothers. And they taught their clients to develop their brand around a single word that they referred to as a love mark. When we built Franklin Spirico Media, that word for us was create. I could present the entire business off of that single word creating a brand story, creating an image, creating professionalism. That's what we we branded on that single word. I don't know that every business can be pared down to that. Sachi and Sachi say it can be done. And I don't know that every business needs to be pared down to a single word. But if you try to do it, you're going to develop a very specific brand story. And then you're going to be able to tell your story, and your story will be repeatable. Marketing is telling your story. Viral marketing is when other people tell your story for you. So the more complex it is to tell your story, the less viral effects you get in the world today. The simpler your story, especially if simple and compelling, the more effect you get of people telling your story for you. Next, to go along with all this, you need a social media presence. I know some people detest social media. But if you're going to be in business, I don't care. And I, I kind of go back to, you know, about 120 years ago. It was very common if you wanted to know something about a product, you would get a catalog. It might even be a catalog sitting at a general store because there's only like one for the town. And, you, and the general store could even order the product for you from the catalog and get their little piece for doing it. But if you had, you would read the catalog, it would give you information, but if you didn't, if you had a question, wasn't answered and, and, you know, you needed an answer, you would actually write a handwritten letter. And you would mail it to ABC Corporation in New York. And, you know, anything from an owner to a manager to a lackey would get that thing and read it and then write you a written response and mail it back to you. And that's the way business was done for a long time. Then this thing came around called the telephone. And there were business owners that said, we don't need that. We ain't taking calls. Well, when your customers start using the phone, you answer it. When your customers use email, you start responding to it. When your customers get on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Snapchat, whatever, wherever your customers are, then they want to communicate with you, you go there and communicate with them. Can you imagine? If you called up a business today on the phone and they said, "Send us a letter. Send us a letter. and We'll answer it." We don't talk to people on the phone. In fact, when you called, you got a machine. That's what it said. We don't do. We don't do service this way. We don't take emails. We don't do social media. We don't do phones. Write us a letter. Mail it to P.O. box. Blah blah blah. And we will get an answer back to you within two weeks after we receive it. By the way, send a SASE. For those of you that are too young to know what a SASE is, it's a self-addressed stamped envelope. That was a business tactic back in the '70s and '80s when people you people would send to get information from you, they would have to put a self-addressed stamped envelope inside the envelope where they sent the request. Then you would take the response, put it in their own envelope, they paid the postage and filled it out, so you got them to do it for you, right? Could you imagine how people would respond to that today? Like bullshit. I mean, at least have a customer service email. When you ignore social media in 2020, you're ignoring the phone in 1925. And it wasn't a good idea then, it's not a good idea now. Next, you need a product delivery solution. You think about how I'm going to get whatever this product is to people. I have multiple product delivery solutions. You are actually receiving one of my products right now. It's a product I don't charge for. But it's a product I sell, it's the number one product I market, And and it's the product that drives revenue, it's the podcast itself. Every podcast I do is a marketing piece. It's not designed specifically to be a marketing piece, but that's how it results. I I love audio because I say, especially in this day and age, it's the one form of content people can can, can consume while doing something else. Some of you right now are gardening. You're like looking over your shoulder going, is he, is he here? Yeah, some of you are not an exercise bike or lifting weights or taking a walk or driving in your car. No, I'm not over your shoulder. That's just how people consume audio. So you consume this information and it, it, it causes you to have a certain affinity for me and then some percentage of you will then do business with me some other way. So my primary delivery solution is RSS syndication into podcast distribution services like iTunes or Stitcher Radio or iHeartRadio Radio or whatever or direct downloads from a website. Right, That's my primary product delivery solution. I sell a membership, which I use an e-commerce platform to deliver, selling through Stripe and PayPal. And I have an advertising services platform that I sell that is handled pretty much the same way, except there has to be some more physical, there's more human-human interaction there. But most of my sponsorship revenue is completely automated at this point because I only talk to a sponsor when they want something. As long as they're getting business, they pay the bill, it's automatic monthly draft. That's my product delivery service. I am about to release a book this spring that will be fulfilled by Amazon in a its own unique niche way of Amazon, you know, publishing. So that has its own delivery solution. We, I've been in various different types of businesses over the years, but there was always had to be a way that we get the product, whatever it is, to the customer. So as you're designing your business, you have to think about what is the delivery model. And how does that factor into all the other stuff we talked about, like I love, I'm good at, my strengths, the things I suck at? If you suck at follow-up, you want to automate as much as possible, or you need to, in your delivery solution, out-task right? that, that particular function, because that's the last thing you can afford in a new business. to let a customer down, and they don't get what they paid for, or they don't get an answer. The next thing you need, an over-the-top work ethic. You are not going to succeed in 2020 building a small business with the same work ethic most people take to a job where they even do really well at it. You have to be driven at a different level when it comes to being successful in a business. You can't half-ass it. You can't phone it in once in a while. Uh, Especially most startups, there's no one else to pull the weight. So we've all had days where we go to work and we're just not feeling it. And we just, you know... We should pick the phone up when the phone rings, but there is a receptionist. That's their primary job. Everybody in the office knows they're supposed to do that, and I just don't want to talk to anybody, so I'm just going to let it ring four times, five times. Somebody will get it today. You know, you work in a retail outlet, there's a guy standing there. I'll let Tom talk to him today. I just, I'm not feeling good today. Like, none of that kind of shit plays when you are starting up your own business. When I started this business, I had people say, Hey, you're doing a show a day. We really like it, but you're going to burn out. You know, how about just like do one a week or three a week or something? I'm like, No way, man. If it's not there every day, if you don't know that I care that much, you're not going to care that much. It had to be over the top work ethic to succeed, to rise above competition, which did exist and still does. You have to have that over the top work ethic. You have to have the ability to improvise, adapt, and overcome. Shit will go wrong. I spent most of last night working with my tech team and this morning continuing to deal with a technical problem was causing the site to load really slowly and causing email to not get to me. And my emails to not get to people. That's not good for my business. We improvise, adapt, and overcome through it. We got around it. I won't even get into the details because it doesn't really matter, but we dealt with it beyond just fixing it. Over the years, I've had a lot of things I've wanted to be able to do. Can't do it the way I wanted to do it. How am I going to do it? How am I going to get it done? That goes back to my military training, Improvise, Adapt, Overcome. That is, that is Army 101 right there. But I don't think you can be successful in a business without that because when we design a business for employees to work in, We try to remove as much of that need from our employees as possible, just to be blunt, as as an entrepreneur. When you you build a business, it's going to employ people. The the, the thinner I can make an employee manual, that if you know everything in that manual, you can do 90% of what you need to do 90% of the time, the better off I am. Because if I get rid of you, I can replace you like that. Plus, you know what to do. Because we know that most people, when put in a position where they have to make a decision, are not going to want to make a decision for a bunch of reasons. One, they don't feel qualified. Two, out of fear that if it's the wrong decision, they're going to get fired. Three, that they never had the authority to do it in the first place, even if you told them they did And it just keeps going from there. So we try to design that out of our businesses, especially at lower-level employee positions and even mid-level employee positions. And so you're in kind of a senior management position. We want to design as much need for you to make decisions out of your job as possible as an owner. Because that lets us have repeatability and dependability in our business. We know how to forecast. We know how to present when we're trying to get a loan. We, we, we have lots of data points that we can use to say, hey, Mr. Banker. I need uh, a cash flow loan for the next three months during kind of this hole in revenue, but this hole in revenue happens every year. Here's my historical, here's everything that's going on. Here's all my financials this year. And a banker goes, okay, fine, boom. Just throws money at you. No problem, because they know they're getting it back. And the more I design my business that way, the better. Businesses have to be really mature before that happens. So when your business is six months old and you go ask for that loan... That especially if you haven't done it before somewhere else, that banker tells you to piss off. You have to be able to make up that shortfall on your own. You can't rely on, you know, that bridge loan is what it's called, right? You have to go out and you have to bridge it yourself. So you have to have that quick, on-your-feet, boxer-like, bob-and-weave mentality. And if you don't have it, you got to get it. You need a realistic understanding of the value of your market or at least the numbers required on your end. So people will go into, let's say, the food business. You say, well, is the market big enough? Well, it's a, you know, just retail food in America is $600 billion a year. Yeah, I think a piece of that's enough. Yeah, but what's your piece of it in your area? If you're going to go into farming, let's say you're going to take one of the ideas I had recently, a CSA greenhouse based hydroponic farm CSA selling to individuals and co-ops and restaurants Okay, how big is the market in your area for that kind of product it's probably big enough but how much do you have to produce and what's required to produce that much and what is scaling into that look like because I've had people back when we were doing duck eggs you know we were doing about $35,000 a year in sales just in duck eggs and I had people tell me that they were gonna get a full-time income from duck eggs. Cause they had watched my videos and like, they could do that too. And I was like, do you know how many duck eggs? You, first of all, do you, what is a full-time income? Well, I make 45,000 at work right now. Okay, so you need to make about 70. When you start having to pay for all the shit you don't know about that your employer's paying for, if you're making 45, you're gonna need to make about 70. That means you're gonna have to do double what we do. We're running 150 ducks. That does not mean go out and buy 300. But that's just your gross billing. You need to make that much. Do you know what the cost is to manage that many animals? Do you know what the labor is going to be without that? And it's not you can't do it, it's like actually it's a terrible idea. Duck eggs are a great business unit, they are not a great business. And I could speak from experience because I was doing it. But it was also the case that people just had no idea. Well, I'll go get 50 ducks. Well, how many eggs does that produce? And if you sold them all for the highest price you can, feeding them the cheapest you possibly can, what does that number look like? And most people don't have any idea. It's not an egg business, right? It's just an example. No matter what it is, they don't know what that looks like. My view with this business was that with my initial offering... Of a membership at fifty dollars a year, a thousand customers it was fifty thousand dollars, and selling out all my sponsorship was about thirty-five thousand dollars. And that was an eighty-five thousand dollar income, and that was enough money to walk away and build it bigger. I had those numbers from the day I figured out the monetization model on this on the site. Now, I didn't start with those numbers. I knew if I built a podcast large enough that I would find a revenue model. But once I decided to take it from this thing I was trying to this business that was going to provide for my life, I said, there's my walkaway number. By the way, my wife's like, what? What? You you, 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 you do know how much money you make right now, don't you? Yes, I do. You know it's more than that, right? Oh, yes, I do. But that's how much money I need to pay all our bills and build this to as much money as I make now and more, and have freedom to go along with it. That's the walk-away number. And then it was a very simple process. Keep throwing everything at this until those numbers are met. But you got to know what they are. Because if it was, well, you need 100,000 members to have a walk-away number, I need a new business model. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. I'm not going to have 100,000 members ever I'm too much of a dick for that I'm going to piss people off they're going to quit I'm going to have some attrition so that was doable so then we follow that path so many people go into business and you ask them well how much do you have to sell to meet your walk away number from your job they have no idea I'm in the tea business great how much do you make on a packet of tea three dollars are you sure yeah Okay, let's do your numbers. Okay, I make $2. Okay, well, maybe you need to raise your price a dollar or two. I don't know. Will it sell? I don't know. I'm not in the tea business. But then it becomes really clear really fast. This is how much money I can do before I hire labor. This is what labor does to that number. This is how big I have to get so that I can make enough money for this business to actually pay for itself. Or that's not going to happen. This is a part-time side hustle that I'm okay with being that way. It's a lifestyle business that I put 15 to 20 hours a week into. It generates this extra money that goes into my retirement. It's going to let me retire 15 years younger. Those are both okay answers, but it's a good idea to know what you're talking about. Which one of is it going to be? And then once you know that, you need a plan to scale or an acceptance of a scaling limitation. And an acceptance of a scaling limitation is, is not only what I just said. So I'm going to accept the scaling limitation that this is going to be a part-time income, 15 hours of work a week, 20 hours of work a week, whatever it is. It's going to put X amount of dollars in my pocket. That's all going to be allocated toward retirement. I'm going to live off my job. That's one scaling limitation. I have a scaling limitation. My business will only ever be about as big as it is right now. my business for the first few years grew exponentially and it has continuously grown over the years just a little bit every year just a little bit every year and it's not going to ever grow the way it did in the early days ever again because for it to grow at this point I would need to build a team I would have like a programming director a professional producer I would have to run this more like a typical radio show and I would have to have people out doing marketing for me and all of that. And I could build it into a multi-million dollar concern. I don't want to. My scaling limitation is I want the autonomy and the freedom and the limitations that I set for myself on how much responsibility I have. I want that and I want that more than I want a multi-million 1000000000 dollars dollar business again, which I already had. Don't need it. Love it the way that it is now but that pr- creates a scaling limitation. If I'm going to sell a physical product, I'm not, but if I am, then there is a certain cost to get that product delivered. If I have that in some sort of a fulfillment service like an Amazon, it's pretty unlimited at that point. But if I have to warehouse my own product, I have to think about how do I scale to the size that I want to be. And that's this is not a one-time analysis that I just went through. This is a fundamental analysis that probably happens annually and and maybe every couple of years at a little bit higher level. And if if we don't do that, then let me be clear about this. My business will never grow at the rate that it did in the first five years. But it won't stop growing if I'm doing it right. A business that isn't growing a little bit every year is in decline. There's no stasis in business. So we have to have a plan for growth, and we have to challenge ourselves to continue to grow our presence, our market, and our business. And my final thoughts on all this today, I've kind of said this already, but it's not for everybody. And the other option, if you want the benefits of this without the gut grinder that it can be, because it really can be, then it's financial independence via saving, investing, and lifestyle design. And that can look a hundred different ways. That's cutting back on your expenses. That's putting together a good preparedness plan so you don't get knocked off. That's getting a good solid budget in, in, in place. That's making your purchasing decisions using Excel. You know? That's, that's anything from the extreme that uh, Jacob Fisker with early retirement extreme to something that looks a little bit more like John Pugliano. Now, John did eventually become a financial advisor and manage money for other people. But he was a self-made millionaire before he did that by working a job that he was pretty good at, by being smart about the money he spent, being smart about the money he invested. And when he built up a, a million dollar net worth, he said, I think I'm qualified now to help other people do that. Now, he didn't have to. He loves what he does. I would say John Pagliano has a lifestyle business. He loves being of service to other people. He loves helping other people, and he loves economics and finance. So it fits his lifestyle. He's going to be managing his money anyway, and the way John handles his clients is he he treats their money literally as he treats his own money. If he wouldn't do it with his money, he's not going to do it with your money. So it's a lifestyle business, but it didn't have to be. He could have stayed where he was for another 10 years if that had felt right for him. And then just managed his own money and walked away and pretty much lived in retirement from an early age. See, that's that's the other option. You can do pretty well as an employee if you understand that your number one asset is your income and your number one time to make the most of it is between about 25 and 45. I see so many people in their 30s and they're not hitting their stride yet and I'm like, man... If you're not going to have the -the over-the-top work ethic for yourself, then you need to have it for somebody else if you really want freedom. One way or another, you have to have that over-the-top work ethic. And a big part of your job, when you're not making as much money as you should, you have two choices. You either become so valuable to the people you're working for that you can sit down with your boss and say, listen, what you're paying me is not working for me at this point. And they say, what do we got to do? Or you work so hard at becoming better that you go have that conversation with a stranger and say, it's not working for me over there. I would like to come make this work for you. And they throw lots of money at you to drag you over across the street. Those are the two ways you do it. And sometimes you're in a place where it's not happening. I was at a point in my life, I was at a point in my life, I had done so much for the company I was working for. And I wanted a sales job that was primarily commission-based. And they had a policy. You had to have a college degree and in like a couple areas, too. You weren't good enough to be a salesman. I have sold millions of dollars worth of work for you as a technician. Yeah, well, we just... Uh, uh, oh, okay. You're a project management position, so you're going to pay me like freaking 10 grand more a year to work three times as hard? Yeah. How about no? And I went out and found somebody else, and I said, hey, I can start bringing businesses in day one. And they said, hell, we're going to pay you dirt. For your base, so fine, go ahead, and I did, and I got really good at it, and then I was able to go to another company and say, "Hey, I kind of want to work for a bigger company, somebody with a little bit more backbone, et cetera," and I was able to move myself into very high level of corporate success, very very young. It ended up not being what I wanted, but that was another path. I could have I could have dealt with that shit for twenty five years. I could have dealt with that shit for 25 years. I could have kissed ass sufficiently. If I would have played the game, I would have continued to advance in that world. And wherever I hit a ceiling within the company, I would have just found another company and moved over. If you want to do that, that's okay too. There's some benefits. Having your employee pay for insurance, having your employer pay for half of your freaking social security taxes... When you go to apply for credit, having a employment history instead of self-employment history, I mean, there's some advantages. You have to figure out which one of these works for you. But it doesn't matter where the money comes from. It matters more what you do with it, how you manage it, and how how you design your life. You should be designing your life that every year your life pays for itself more and more, no matter how that happens. That's, that's my thoughts on this, and I really hope that you guys enjoyed today's show. I know I enjoyed doing it for you. With that, if you want to support this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. My item of the day for you today, I am jazzed about bringing to you, not so much for the item because of why and what you can do with it. It's a waffle maker. Now, I've talked a lot about cooking over the years because I think it's an incredible skill, and I think it is a big part of reducing your expenses, controlling your health, all types of things that, that fit in with lifestyle design. And preparedness. But waffle maker is probably like... Of all the things you thought you'd hear Jack Spirico talk about, especially low-carb Jack Spirico, a waffle maker is probably the last thing. Well, this is the Dash Mini Waffle Maker. It makes little bitty waffles, you know, about the size of an Ego. Right about the size of an Ego. Um, It's 10 bucks, And it works really good. It gets really hot really fast, and it just works like everything I recommend. I don't make waffles, though. I don't eat waffles. I make... Chaffles. What the hell is a chaffle, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. A chaffle started out as a attempt to make something that tasted like a waffle that, in my opinion, was not very good. It was a mixture of cheese and egg. You put it in a waffle iron, and it looks just like a waffle. It tastes like cheesy egg. Over time, during the dark days of the Keto Wars, where the Keto Jedi were left alone... And there were no keto products, they knew that the chaffle had potential. And it was worked with. And a few additions to that cheese and egg were made baking powder, almond flour, and then my personal contribution to the wars a little bit of something called xanthan gum. And then the cheese was changed. At least I changed the cheese. Lots of people use lots of different cheeses. But when this all started out with, everybody used a mozzarella. Now, he'll use mozzarella, because if you've ever eaten mozzarella, you know it, it's kind of good, but it also kind of bland. It has, n- it's neutral. Well, the idea was, let's stay neutral with the flavor. No, cheddar. Cheddar is the way forward with the chaffle. And you take this, this mixture, and I have the whole recipe in the write up for you today with the waffle iron. And you mix it up in a, in a, in a container. And then there's a technique. Like many things with cooking, the recipe's half, the technique's the other half and I have a video out for you today to see how to do this, and you do it a certain way. And you get, it does not taste just like a waffle. It does taste very, very good, and it's very flexible, what you can do with it. Very simple thing I did in the video. I made it, put some cream cheese on it, threw some everything but the bagel seasoning on it. I have a link for that in the the write-up today, too, the everything bagel seasoning, because I found the best that there is. And then I put some vegetables on top of was some chard and some arugula and stuff like that. Oh, my God, it's excellent. I've done that. It's kind of you're substituting it as a bagel. It doesn't taste like a bagel. It tastes like a chaffle. But I've done that with um, salmon. You take, like, salmon locks, put it on cream cheese. So good. Make two of them. Make a burger. Now you have a burger bun. You want a sweet. Uh, use some Lakanto sugar. Some 100% cocoa powder. And some lilies, Stevia Sweetened Chocolate Chips. Mix that up, and you have a chocolate chip freaking waffle. That actually does taste like chocolate freaking cake. Um, and it's kind of unlimited. I've made pizza. Take a chaffle, put pizza toppings on, throw it in the oven until you melt the cheese until the sauce bubbles. But if you want to like take it to another level, since it's pretty small, like I did pepperoni and sausage. Well, instead of putting it on top of the chaffle so it's all falling off like pizza toppings do, I chopped it up, put it in the chaffle mix, and cooked the pepperoni and the sausage into the chaffle, and then did, like, sauce, cheese, and basil on the top. Like, this changes everything in the world of keto because it gives you something. And here's what I really like about it. There's a lot of stuff kind of like this in the world of keto, but there's so much shit in them that they're basically a processed food. This is basically a cheese omelet, and it's just a technique that makes it really, really good. If you follow the procedure that I give you in the video, you'll like them. Now, if you want them to taste like a waffle, exactly like an Eggo, it's not going to happen. But they are good, and they're good just like a waffle. Take them, make them, put some butter on them, and put some Lakanto maple-flavored syrup on them. Freaking good. Right? They're fun. I've had them that way. But I prefer them more as a bun or bagel substitute. Give them a try, and this little waffle maker for 10 bucks is a home run. We bought one. And eventually, I just just bought a second one because if I'm making them for my wife and I, we like to sit down and eat together. So twenty bucks, two of them, I can go and make you know four chaffles in less than ten minutes. And that's the thing about these compared to a lot of other stuff that's like the keto substitutes or whatever, keto breads and shit. Most of that stuff, man, it's a it's a it's a process. I can make this without even looking at a recipe card at this point. In well four minutes, the the video is four minutes long. And it starts out with nothing. Like, I I make the whole thing, cook the whole thing, whatever. So I can make one from scratch in four minutes with no special stuff. You just have the ingredients. Check it out, and remember, you can always support us no matter what by doing your online shopping at t Spaz, And I'm telling you, the chaffle for you guys on keto, low-carb, paleo, game changer. Game changer. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. Song of the day today is Wasted on the Way by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I've always loved Crosby, Stills, Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, uh, David Crosby, Stephen Stills. I mean, I I've like just this whole type of like kind of folk music from the 70s. Dan Fogelberg's in this vein. Like I've always loved this type of music. This is one of the great songs, though, of this type, And what this song is about is getting what you want in life. And how much time we waste on the way, but how you can always try. You can always still try. And there's a a line in about like his friends who who basically went for it and got what they deserved. This is also Crosby, Stills & Nash's biggest hit that they ever had. And it fits today's show so perfectly if you actually understand what it's about. I think people listen to the song and they think it's about almost like failure. Like being at the end of your life and not having what you want. It 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 it's really not. It's it's kind of advice from someone that is toward the end of their life that did waste a lot of time, but also did get what they wanted. Turning back to the youth and say, Don't waste too much of it. Get what you deserve by earning it. When we think of that kind of this kind of hippie world and stuff, we don't think of that mindset. But trust me, if you listen to the words, it's in this song. And once again, I don't know how this happens. I didn't know what I was gonna do for the show till this morning when I looked through the list and said, Yeah, I'm gonna do that one. John Adam had no idea. It just seems like a lot of times there's a lot of synchronicity with the music that we have matching the show, and that's happened once again. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
0: No.